You're listening to the New World of Work podcast by the McKinsey Global Institute. We're exploring the future of work, how automation technologies, including artificial intelligence and robotics, could disrupt how we work, where we work, the skills and education we need to work, and what we can do to prepare for these transitions today. Hello, this is Peter Gumbel at the McKinsey Global Institute, and welcome to our latest podcast in the series on the new world of work. Today, we'll be listening to a conversation between James Manika, who is chair of the McKinsey Global Institute, and Matthew Taylor, who is chief executive of the London-based Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. Matthew recently published an independent review for the British government of employment practices in the modern economy. Here they discuss issues including the gig economy, the role of automation, and ways to ensure that the future of work is a good one for everybody. We've been exploring, I think, three questions. One is, who's being exploited? How are they being exploited? What might we do about it? Secondly, an understanding of the incentives that are driving changes in the labour market. And then thirdly, we've addressed the question of work itself. The review stands really on the assertion that all work in the British economy should be fair and decent with scope for development and fulfilment. The UK does very well on uh, quantity of work, and there are still too many people unemployed, too many people underemployed, too many people who declare themselves as not being available for work, but who actually, when we ask them more deeply, would be available for work if the right kind of work uh, was there. But overall, we do very well on quantity of work. We provide a lot more flexibility than other uh, labour markets. But I do think we have a problem about what I would refer to as one-way flexibility. That's flexibility in which basically organisations are trying to transfer the whole risk associated with their organisation onto the shoulders of the most vulnerable workers. So even though economies have recovered from the recession, the quantity of work in quite a few places, you could argue Spain, you could argue the United States and a few others, isn't quite what it needs to be. I am intrigued, though, uh, on the question of flexibility, because one of the things we've been looking at have to do with the so-called you know, rise of the independent work or the gig economy, which has been you know, a widespread phenomenon. But it, it, it's, it's been there for a very long time, but I think it's become particularly visible where it's digitally enabled, where we, people are doing our car ride-sharing services or other kinds of things of that form. You're right about um, these new forms of work, gig work, uh, we have seen a steady growth in self-employment, of course, in this country. And when that self-employment growth started after the world economic crisis, there was a sense that this was because people were choosing self-employment because there was no jobs available. It was involuntary self-employment. But actually, as the economy has improved, self-employment has not fallen. It is continuing to rise, perhaps not at quite the same pace. And so I think we have to recognise that it reflects a number of factors. So. We are seeing more people working post-retirement age and wanting to work in a way which they can control. We are seeing more people who simply want more autonomy and flexibility in their lives in the way that self-employment can offer it. And then these platforms come along and facilitate that, make it easier for people to work in exactly the way they want to work. And therefore the challenge is to make sure that we exploit that opportunity to give people the kind of work they want in the circumstances they want it, but to make sure that we do that in a way that is fair and sustainable. Well, one of the technical questions that we've got to address is this question of where is the divide between people who are self-employed and therefore don't really have many entitlements to employment protections and rights, and, uh, and those who are workers. What we try to do in our report is to suggest how you might draw that line in a way which 
uh, is fairer, but also enables businesses to develop a business model in light of what the regulations are. But in the end, businessmen, businesswomen, business leaders are realistic. What they really want is a framework which is stable so that they know when they set their business up, they're not going to have the rug pulled out from under their feet by some regulatory shift halfway through. I would, I would tend to agree with that. I think one of the things that's quite interesting to me and some of the research we've done about independent work in the gig economy is that if you look at, at most countries, and we've looked at about five or six countries, including the UK and the United States and others, the majority uh, across those countries uh, who do independent work actually do it because they prefer it. They prefer the flexibility. Yes, they prefer the flexibility, the independence, and quite often, in some cases, these are people with unique skills who find that when they can deploy them across a much larger number of users, if you like, or customers, it's actually very helpful. But it is important to note that there is about a third mm. of people who are doing this out of necessity, uh, and the necessity comes in a couple of flavors. One, either because they actually can't find traditional employment. Uh, and you find that, for example, that proportion has been quite high in some countries like Spain, for example. Or they're doing it because even though they may have a full-time job, they don't earn enough uh, from that job and are trying to supplement their incomes. So you find that this other third, they are concerned about income stability and the variability that comes with that. They'll worry about uh, concerns about the portability of benefits, although the portability of benefits tend to affect even the ones who prefer it as well as ones who don't. Uh, but it becomes very acute for the ones who don't prefer it. There are two, therefore, two additional concerns that people have about, about gig working. The first is that we might see the emergence of very, very powerful companies who then have a kind of monopolistic position. I mean, I'm not obsessed with Uber, but the kind of Uberization of other jobs. And so one of the things that, that we heard in our visits to people around the country was that people with a business model who said that their business model be, was being undercut by people moving to this gig working basis. So for example, we were at one hearing and we heard about a, a, a removals firm and the guy who ran the removals firm, he employed people, you know, he paid their, into their pensions, this is what he'd always done. He was now competing with the removal firm down the road that was pretending that the, the, the men who worked for him, I guess it was men mainly, uh, were self-employed. And they, I would say that was erroneous self-employment, but they were claiming and getting away with the idea they were self-employed. And So I think it's important to look at the other side of that too, which is with a lot of the independent work and the gig economy work, even in its modern forms, there's usually a very large group of happy users and consumers of these services, whether it's a car ride sharing services or any of these task-oriented uh, gig economy work. Quite often that servicing a need that was otherwise either too expensively served with other traditional mechanisms or not served at all. So we've seen examples where services now pop up in places where the traditional versions of that didn't go to, uh, whether it's places where taxes never used to go to before or would prefer to show up, poor neighborhoods, whether it's in uh, you know, the kind of uh, places where you couldn't find accommodation. I think this is exactly the point. These new technologies, sharing, gig work, offer enormous opportunities. And not just in terms of improving the quality of service, but in terms of giving people flexibility and potentially disintermediating so that actually the people who provide these services can own the platform which they use. So we could see, I think, the rise of mutuals and cooperatives and new business models based on the fact that you don't need a headquarters and all the bureaucracy that goes with it. You can just have a platform and an algorithm and you, know, you can start to enjoy the economies of scale that come with that. But but we need to do that in a way which is fair, 
to those workers, fair to the market as a whole, and also, as I say, critically, that is sustainable in terms of the fact that governments need taxes. The question for employers is how, how do they think about giving their workers the kind of flexibility that they need? Because quite often in many uh, companies, there's such rigidity, and, and quite often the reason people are opting for these independent forms is they're looking for the flexibility, either the kinds of choices about working hours, working conditions, working style. The other thing that companies need to think about, and, and it, it, this might also even include uh, the platform companies that are providing these platforms that make this possible, is to think about how do they provide a mechanism for the 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 the, the ratings or the uh, or the or the benefits to be able to move around with the workers and how do they help workers kind of stabilize their incomes because we know when people are on these platforms one of the biggest concerns is the just the variability of the incomes this goes back to uh, this point about two-way flexibility which these gig platforms often provide so that, you know as the worker you can choose exactly when you want to work and one-way flexibility, which we see too much of, which is in, uh, typically around forms like zero-hours contracts or low-hours contracts, where the employer says, I can only guarantee you two hours a week, but I'll normally want you to work 30 hours a week. But that means, on the one hand, that if there's any downturn, they can immediately throw that risk onto the worker. It secondly means that that worker has fewer rights and feels that if they ever stand up or if they question decisions, they won't get any hours in the future because they have no rights, for example, around unfair dismissal. The opportunities here are huge. There's a, um, a major supermarket train who are looking at an app, uh, trialling it, which enables their workers uh, to work o overtime in any store they want to. Um, and it also enables those workers, if they are working in a particular part of the store to know what other parts of the store they could work in given the skill set they've got. Now this is fantastic. This is opening up to lower paid retail workers the kind of flexibility that kind of middle-aged IT consultants enjoy and makes them go into self-employment. I wanted to pick up Matthew on something you said at the beginning about how do you think about the quality question? Is it really about incomes or is it about other incomes and other things? It's a great question. What do we mean by good work? We know that um, wages matter to people, particularly who are less off, less well off. Wage differentials matter to people. In a way, people are less concerned with the relationship between their wage and the super rich than they are between the relation between their wage and the person who might be one step above them in the hierarchy, for example. So people want to see a decent wage and they want to see fairness. But once you move beyond that, and indeed, Overall surveys show, show that people are saying that pay is a less important part of what determines whether work is good than it used to be in the past. You come up against the same kinds of things. Meaning. People want a sense that their work is meaningful, that they are doing something useful, something that they can feel proud of. Autonomy. People want to feel that they are able to make judgments and make choices at work and that they will be listened to at work. They will not simply be a cog in a machine what might be called mastery, the sense that I am getting better at something and in getting better at something, I'm enabling myself to have more choices in life as a consequence of the job that I'm doing. And then kind of teamwork, camaraderie, the sense that I am part of an organization which is kind of inclusive and fair and a team and all that kind of stuff. And I think we need to show a lot more imagination about how it is we can bring those things to lower paid, lower skilled jobs. Many of us who are middle class and work in great organizations, you know, we're used to these things, you know, but we, there's no reason why jobs in caring, jobs in retail, jobs in, uh, in, in security, transportation can't have those qualities if we're clever about the way in which we manage our organisations. 
we've looked at one part of that, the income part. Mm -hmm. And we know that one of the things that's changed dramatically in most of these advanced economies, especially the UK and the US, amongst a handful, is that the, the rate of income progression is just stalled. Yes. And huge chunks of uh, workers in these countries have seen their income stagnate and decline. But how much do incomes matter versus some of the other things that you mentioned in that bundle that constitutes, constitutes good work? Clearly income matters a great deal and you're right, the stagnation, the long-term stagnation of living standards for what I think in America you'd call middle class, you know, is a phenomenon. And yes, it may well be connected to a broader dissatisfaction with, um, uh, with authority, although I would say that the disenchantment and pessim social pessimism seems to have started earlier. In a way, it's less about absolute wages as long as you're kind of above the bottom. It's the sense of going forward. Yeah. It's the sense that next year might be better than last year. That flexibility, for example, now just now this varies, of course, across the age range. So women care more about flexibility and less about income in comparison to men. People post-retirement age care more about flexibility and satisfaction from their work, but possibly because they have some pension and therefore they don't, are not so totally dependent on the earnings. In some of the work we've done, if you compare decades previous to 2005 and you ask the question, what proportion of households in most advanced economies, uh, including the UK and, and Britain and in the US, where households have seen their income stagnate or decline, uh, previous to 2005, those were in the single digits for the United States, it was only 2%. Whereas if you look at the period 2005 to 2015, for the US, that number in terms of wages, household income through wages, was 81% of households. So that stagnated. For the UK, it was 70%. So these are stunning differences and levels of stagnation that we hadn't seen in previous generations. Whereas in previous gen decades, you'd have said, even though we had ways of inequality, at least most people, the vast majority, were progressively getting better. One of the interesting questions uh, for our societies is the question of uh, what are people's expectations? For the most part, the last several decades have delivered on the expectation that successive generations will be successively better off than their parents. Uh, in fact, that was one of the reasons we actually titled the research we did on this, Poorer Than Their Parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that people start to think that in fact their own lives as well as the, the, that of their children isn't going to be better off than theirs was, I think it starts to seed and create a sense of uh, discontent. I just wonder, what is setting that expectation? Is that measured on incomes? Is that measured on standard of living? Is that measured on flexibility and choice? What is that expectation and is it changing? I think it's a fascinating question. I don't think we talk about it nearly enough. I mean, you know, just take one element of this. The internet has transformed what it is that poorer people are able to access simply by owning a single device. So we, we talk about living standards and we simply see it in terms of disposable income with some kind of you know, def inflation deflator. But actually, you know, 20 years ago, in order to have access to the world's libraries, in order to have access to the best films, the best shows, in order to be able to communicate with people on the side of the world, you'd have had to be very rich. Now, you just need to have a mobile phone contract. So I think that understanding what people count as being the critical things that they need in life you know, is, is a really interesting thing. No, I actually tend to agree with you. I think when we look at even things like technology and globalization, by and large, they've given us choices and utility and a whole set of things. 
But as one political scientist reminded me the other day, he said, well, you forget one thing, which is that people don't vote as consumers, they vote as workers. If they mm -hmm. voted as consumers, we'd all be fine because we've delivered choice, we've delivered the internet, we've given them all these things that have made life infinitely better, access to education, entertainment, all the rest of it. If that was the question, we'd all be fine. Mm -hmm. The problem is when people express their points of view as, as voters, by and large, they're voting mostly as workers. When I worked in government um, 12 years ago or so, uh, there was a phrase that described the policy, and that phrase was work first. And woe betide you if you were in a seminar or a discussion and you talked about training or the quality of work or anything like that, because a civil servant from the Treasury or the Department of Work and Pensions would say to you, forget all of that, work first. If people don't have a job, they are miserable and they are sick, and the longer they don't have a job, the less likely it is that they will get a job. So just get them into a job, any job. And that was the kind of prevailing view, and there's a lot of strength to that view. It is absolutely true that the number one anti-poverty strategy in any economy is to get people work. But I think that that possibly has now run out of steam and that people are now starting to say that it's not just about everyone having a job and it's not just about the income, but it is, as I say, about the quality of that work, about whether or not it balances with other parts of your life, whether or not you get fulfillment from it. And maybe this does link into the conversation about universal basic income, because it's also about saying perhaps society needs to recognise and acknowledge the non-wage work that we do, the caring work that we do, yes. the volunteering work. So the idea, part of the idea of universal basic income is possibly moving away from the idea that you have to have paid work to be a valid citizen. Most of the jobs that have been growing uh, since the recovery of the, of the recession look like uh, care work. Uh, and often that's work that's unpaid. Uh, back in 1964, there was a, you know, President Lyndon Johnson commissioned a report and a study, a Blue Ribbon Commission, to look at these questions of automation and technology <laughs> and work. And uh, I remember there's one striking uh, conclusion that was captured in a phrase where they said, technology destroys jobs, but not work. Mm. Uh, and the reason why that's interesting is that there's still lots of things to be done, mm -hmm. and we don't recognize it as work in the formal sense, mm. because we've never had effective income models for that kind of work. Either it goes unpaid or it doesn't get paid very well. How do we, is that where universal basic income should be coming in or other mechanisms yeah. to? So, so I'm a big advocate, the RSA is a big advocate of universal basic income. I've done a lot of work on it and working on various pilots in, in Britain and other places. I think there's a really big kind of divide in the UBI uh, argument. So there's one UBI view which is captured beautifully in the phrase the kind of the right to be lazy which is you know the UBI is an opportunity for us to live in a kind of world that Marx envisaged or Keynes envisaged where you know we only work 10 hours a week and the rest of the time we're kind of reading philosophy writing poetry and fishing. Now you know great if we could have such a world great but you know that's not going to happen in my lifetime or even my grandchildren's lifetime. What I think UBI should really be about is, is enabling flexibility, enabling choice. It's about saying, how can we make it easier for you to combine work and caring, bringing up children, looking after relatives, looking after your neighbour, volunteering, being active in society? How can we make it easier for people whose work is not fulfilling to drop out of work, not 
to sit on their, their couch all day watching TV, but to maybe retrain or to set up a business or to run a business from home. So for me, UBI is about enabling people to have a greater sense of urgent agency in a fast-changing world of work and to combine work with other things in their life. Would you condition it in any way or would you make it no, totally I, unconditional? I, I wouldn't make it conditional because I think thereby hang, you know, but that just leads to a huge amount of bureaucracy and I think also it leads to an adversarial relationship between the government and citizens, which I think is a bad thing. To be honest, I just make it quite low. So we're not talking about something which you can fly around the world and have holidays on. We're talking about something which just enables you to survive and keep going. And the other critical thing about UBI, of course, is that unlike most welfare benefits, you don't lose it when you get a job. So it strengthens work incentives. One thing we haven't touched upon is the impact on technology and all of this, uh, whether it's automation or other forms of uh, technological impacts that we're all having a public conversation about at the moment. D does that make you more optimistic or does it make these kinds of challenges worse or better or easier? I think this is a really important issue um, and we've done a lot of work at the RSA and we're looking pre precisely at this question of the impact of automation on low-paid, low-skilled jobs. And I think our argument would be that uh, a lot of the kind of hype about, you know, 30% or 20% or whatever jobs are going to disappear isn't particularly helpful. Those predictions have, generally speaking, been wrong in the past. And I think you need to look at it in a much more kind of nuanced way. It'll less be about whole jobs going. It'll more be about the nature of tasks changing. I'm old enough to have seen it happen before this kind of idea, well, the robots take our jobs away and in 20 years' time, inevitably, half the population will be unemployed. I think that's absolute nonsense. But we do need to understand the way in which technology may impact. And the critical thing here is about choices. And what I slightly worry about at the moment is that in our breathless talk about robotics and AI, we, 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 we lapse into a kind of technological determinism that says that human beings must do whatever the robots and the AI makes possible. And I want to say, no, let's start from notions of good work and good lives and then see how can this amazing stuff enable us to take the drudgery out of work, but leave the stuff that's really interesting? How can it make public services much more efficient so we can improve people's quality of education and healthcare? And so we've had a lot of conversations at the RSA and they've started about numbers and technology and its possibilities. They nearly always end up within an hour, people talking about politics and talking about choices. So, and and, and what, what do you think are some of the most important choices that we as a society will have to make about these questions? I, I think we need to make choices about what we invest in. So, you know, I, 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 you know, this is a, a very big argument, of course, but I think we tend to underplay the role that government has historically played in technological innovation. And I think we need public-private partnerships, and I think the government plays an important role in issuing and supporting challenges to entrepreneurs and innovators about the kinds of things, the problems we should be solving, you know, green energy or more efficient forms of care or better types of healthcare, for example. I think there's something there about human dignity and saying, you know, whatever we do with machines, we don't want to get to a stage where human beings are kind of the slaves to, you know, uh, to, to machines. And I think we've got to worry about market power. And I know that often the people who run these firms, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're young and they're funky and they give lots of money to charity and they seem well-meaning. But, you know, let's go back to what we know about what happens to monopolies in the end. So I think another really big consideration is this technology needs to be available to, you know, lots of organisations, lots of people. It doesn't need to be hoarded by a small number of extremely rich corporations. And, and when you think about that question of power, do you think it's the same questions about power that we worried about, say, 100 years ago versus today? 
you'd worry about it translating into pricing, for example. Mm -hmm. But arguably, in this case, uh, that may not be the question. So I guess I wonder, what, what, what specifically do you worry about the I concentration think, yeah, of power? I think this is, you know, this is a great piece, it's a great subject for a piece of work, really, which is, we need a new theory of monopolies. I agree with you. I think that some of the critique, the things we would have worried about monopolies in the past don't apply in the same way as they do now, but I think there are new things. So, you know, 100 years ago, people were worried about price gouging. Right. Now, they're worried about personal information, for example. They're worried about intrusiveness. You know, we have never had corporations that know so much about us as these corporations, for example. So I think we need a new conversation about, about corporate power in the modern world, not one that is antagonistic to any individual companies, you know, but, that, but asks deep questions about whether or not, what, what should we be concerned about? You know, I certainly think a lot about when we think about questions of what AI and machine learning and these technologies kind of do and worry about uh, things like bias, for yeah. example. And quite often there's inherent bias in some of that data. And so you're, you then amplify what may have been historically human biases into these algorithmic biases, uh, and that has enormous scale effect. But I'd also talk about the power of these corporations to hold nations to ransom, because they are so powerful, they are more powerful than nations, and I don't think it's healthy when democratically elected politicians feel that they can't really stand up to, to corporations, whether at a national level or even at a kind of you know, European level. I would also worry about wealth. I would worry about the amount of money these corporations have salted away. And, you know, and I would make a prediction uh, that if we had another global economic downturn, the public's attitude would be, we're having your money. But I think these corporations need to think about whether, if the world was suffering again, the amount of money they're sitting on would be tolerable to people. You have been listening to a podcast conversation between James Manika, chairman of the McKinsey Global Institute, and Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the London-based Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. This podcast is one in a series where we look at different issues relating to the new world of work, and we encourage you to tune in again to some of our others. You can also download all our research for free on www.mckinsey.com MGI. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to The New World of Work by the McKinsey Global Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. To learn more about the research discussed in today's episode, visit mckinsey.com MGI or follow at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. <laughs>